Turn to Romans 8. Romans chapter 8. And we'll read verses 31 to 34. Romans 8, 31. What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who can bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Let's hear the word preached. Well, Romans 8 is like a wonderful piece of music. Uh, If the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is the conductor of this orchestra, then the symphony of Romans 8 could be called the believer's security in Christ. The believer's security in Christ. And from the very first note struck, we hear what this piece of music is all about. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's like symbols on the first note. This is what this chapter, this piece of music is about. And every line thereafter is just a variation on that theme. In different ways, driving home this same sweet melody of the believer's security in Jesus Christ. Now, we've been making our way through this piece of music, and we're nearing the end of the symphony. Verse 31 marks the beginning of the ending when it asks, what then shall we say in response to these things? Can can we sum up? Can we bring this to a, a conclusion? What should we say? And, and so here is when the music begins to swell and all the instruments are called into play, the volume increases and we sense it is building up to a great climactic finale. And five questions then follow, one after another, all sounding this note of triumph on which the music ends. Now, so far we've heard two questions and today we hear two more. Next week, the finale, Lord willing. And for ease of memory, it just so happens in God's providence that these questions follow the number of our verses. So question number one is verse 31. Question two is verse 32. And right on to the fifth one, verse 35. So there are the five questions. Uh, We've seen number one, question number one in verse 31. If God is for us, Who can be against us? And the answer is not stated. It's implied in the question. It doesn't matter who's against us so long as God is for us. Question number two, verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him freely give us all things? If he didn't withhold even his own beloved son, 
but gave him up to the hellish cross for us. Could he possibly withhold anything else that we needed? Again, the question has no answer, but it's inconceivable that he would give his son and then withhold something else. And today we consider two more questions, and we're going to take them together because in, in one way they ask the same question just in different ways. And you say, why would Paul do that? Well, it gives him opportunity uh, to just give more and more uh, information about what makes the believer's security so secure. So we come to question number three. In verse 33, who will bring any accusation, any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is, Christ, it is God who justifies. Now, this, this language of bringing a charge, an accusation against someone, it takes us right into the, the courtroom of heaven. It's a legal phrase. And... The ones in question in this court are none other than God's elect, those whom God has chosen. That's how they're described. And so, believers, we want to pause and emphasize that this is your identity. This is who you are in the eyes of God. You are God's elect. You are those whom God has chosen. Now, I want to ask, is it your self-conscious identity? Do you think of yourself this way? I am one of God's chosen ones. Over and over again, this is how God addresses you in the Bible, Christian. Uh, whole letters in the New Testament are addressed to you as God's elect, God's chosen ones. Colossians 3.12 is just one sampling of, of a verse where you're identified as such, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, and then follows the commandment. In other words, you're not to even go about keeping these commands without remembering who you are. You're God's chosen ones, dearly loved chosen ones. You were meant to live with that self-conscious identity a reality that you wake up to, you go through your day, you pillow your head at night. I am one of God's dearly loved chosen ones. Now, this idea of the election or cho choosing of God is a, a common theme in the Bible. Uh, to choose means to select. To, you, you selected certain clothes today that you, would, that you would wear and you left other clothes in the wardrobe. It's the word, it's, it's what, uh, what we do when we elect officials to represent us. We, we select some and, and leave others uh, for others to vote for. Uh, it's election, selection, choosing. It's what David did when he went down to the brook. And the Bible says that he chose five smooth stones. He left many other stones in the brook, but he, he chose these five and took them with him. It's, it's the word that's used of God choosing Israel out of all the nations of the world. Deuteronomy 7, 6, the Lord your God has chosen you, speaking to the descendants of Abraham. He's chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. 
God made a selection of one nation out of all the nations. Oh, but don't think, Israelites, don't think for a moment it was because of your righteousness that I chose you. God says, no, for from the day you left Egypt, you've been a stiff-necked, stubborn, rebellious people against the Lord. Then, then why did he choose them? Well, he chose them because he loved them. And why did he love them? He loved them because he chose to love them. There was nothing in them that allured him to choose them, that, that attracted him to choose them. It was his own love that he set upon them. And such is our election unto salvation. From the beginning, 1 Thessalonians 2.13, from the beginning he loved us and chose us to be saved. From the beginning, before we were born, he chose us. He loved us and chose us to be saved. Ephesians 1.4, he chose us in Christ before the creation of the world, not because we were holy and blameless, but he chose us to be holy and blameless. A blessing to be holy and blameless, to be like God and to live with him. And we were chosen for this. So, so those in Christ Jesus are here addressed in verse 33 as God's elect, those he chose to save and make his own treasured possession, the apple of his eye, and all because of his sovereign grace and love. That's your identity, believer in Jesus. Live with it. Soak it in. Enjoy it. These are the ones who are being examined in this courtroom of heaven. So that's our identity. What's the identity of the judge? Well, notice the answer. It is God who justifies. First of all, notice he is God. He's the eternal I am. And as God, he's the lawgiver, the one we've sinned against, as we just heard in our worship of song. Every one of our sins are against him. But he's the one who chose us to be his own beloved people. And he chose his son to be our savior. 1 Peter 1.20 And sent him as his precious chosen cornerstone to be the foundation of our trust. The foundation of our salvation. And he's the one who justifies. It is this God the eternal God, the law-giving God, the one we've sinned against God, but the one who chose us in Christ before the creation of the world to be his own. It's he who justifies. God has the gavel in his hand. And having examined all the evidence, he's already rendered his verdict. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Justified, which means to declare righteous. And so God the judge has declared us righteous. Righteous in the eyes of the law. There's no law that we have broken in the courtroom of heaven. It's gone. Any disobedience, gone. 
So we're not only viewed by the judge as one who, just as if I'd never sinned, but also as one just as if I'd perfectly obeyed every command all the time. And so this triumphant challenge is thrown down. Who then will bring any charge against one of these whom God has chosen and justified? Who can get an accusation to stick in the courtroom of heaven against one of these? Answer, no one. Oh, Satan may try. Indeed, his name means accuser, and he's called the accuser of the brethren. But if he accuses us of a sin, the judge says, yes, I know all about that. I'm omniscient, and I know a whole lot more than that. And if Satan quotes the law that would condemn us, saying he's a lawbreaker, and your law says that the one who sins shall die, you said that you would never, uh, that the soul that sins, it shall die, and, and that you will by no means clear the guilty. Your own justice demands his damnation. If he says such, the judge answers, those demands have already been fully satisfied, fully met, by his substitute, Jesus Christ. So that God can be both just and the justifier of those who believe in Jesus. You see, the judge is the very one who didn't spare his own son, but gave him up to the cross for us. That that there he might be judged and damned and take the condemnation that we deserve. As verse 3 of our chapter says, that God sent his own son in the likeness of sinful man, and for sin, and so God condemns sin in the flesh of his own son. So with all the demands of justice poured out on Christ, with condemnation suffered, he can say of us who believe in him, no condemnation, not now or ever. Justice smiles and asks no more. God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. It's God who justifies. It's he who declares righteous all who have faith in Jesus Christ. Anyone who attempts a condemning accusation, you see, has my judge to deal with, not not me. He has the judge. It's God who justifies. It's his verdict. You must deal with him. And such a verdict from God the judge shuts every mouth and silences every accusation against his chosen and justified ones in the courtroom of heaven. And you know there is no higher court of appeal. This is the supreme court, the supreme judge. And does that not spell assurance and security and confidence for those who are in Christ Jesus? What's the meritorious ground of our justification? That's just to ask, what what is it that, that merits God having, looking at all the evidence and bringing the verdict, no condemnation for this believer in me? What gets him to that conclusion, that verdict? Well, it's not your works. He's not looking at your works. Not a glance at your works. It's it's not even your faith. It's not your repenting. No, it's Christ and His righteousness. 
Christ and his obedience. That's what God looks at. Our faith is just the instrument of receiving Christ. It's the empty hands. That's what faith is. It's the empty hands that receive Christ and and all of his merits, all of his obedience and righteousness. And it, it, it puts that to my account. That's what faith does. It's an instrument. But it's not the ground. It's not like God says, wow, he's got faith. I'm going to declare him righteous. No, no, our faith is not perfect. It's got sin in it itself. It's imperfect. No, he's not looking at our works, our faith, our repenting. He's looking at Christ, whom faith receives and receives with him all his obedience, even his obedience unto the death of the cross. So faith looks away from anything in myself. Saving faith doesn't have anything to look to in self. It looks away to an alien righteousness, to to a righteousness outside of ourselves. And it says to God, look on him at your right hand and pardon me. And that's what God does in justification. He looks at his son and pardons us. He sees righteousness in his son that's been put over us and put to our account. Blessed is he whose transgressions are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute iniquity. He imputes it to his son and the righteousness of his son to us. Well, all of this was foretold in a vision to Zechariah the prophet 600 years earlier, 600 years before Christ was born. Zechariah 3, 1 to 5. It's a vision. It's a divine revelation to the prophet Zechariah. It would be seen in his mind like a movie. And that's the way God sometimes revealed himself to his prophets. And so Zechariah has this vision and he's told that the things that he sees are symbolic of things to come about the servant of the Lord, the branch, which are names for Messiah. And he's told that this vision is about how the Lord Almighty will remove the sin of this land in one day. So, so this is a vision of, of how sin's going to be removed. It's a vision of what the Messiah is going to do to save his people. And so he's, Zechariah is taken right up into the courtroom of heaven. And he's shown Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord. And Satan standing by his right side to accuse him. So there's the three characters in the vision. First of all, Joshua. He's the high priest. And as high priest, he represents all of God's people. So when we see Joshua in this vision, we're not just to see one man. We're to see all the people represented by him. So that's Joshua, the high priest. And we're told he was dressed in filthy clothes. So get the picture, all the people, filthy. Standing before the angel of the Lord. Now that's a, that's a phrase that refers to the pre-incarnate son of God. Before he became a man and took on our flesh, he's often referred to in the Old Testament as the angel, not just an angel, but the angel of the Lord. And so here he is. He is both 
called the angel of the Lord and called the Lord because he is God. And then there's Satan, whose name means accuser. And he's standing at Joshua's right hand to accuse him. Now, this is a slam dunk case for the, the prosecution because there's Joshua standing in his filthy rags. There, there's no way out. He's guilty of sin. He's guilty of sin. And, and he's covered in filth. And Satan is there to accuse. The evidence is undeniable. But the angel of the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. You see, that's who Joshua is representing, Jerusalem, the people of God. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this man a burning stick snatched from the fire? Well, you leave the stick in the fire, it's going to be consumed. But he's saying, is this not one of those that have been chosen and snatched out of the fire, saved from the judgment of God? And then the angel of the Lord says to those standing before Joshua, take off his filthy clothes. And he says to Joshua, see, I've given, I've taken away your sin and I will put rich garments on you. Put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him while the angel of the Lord stood by. His filthy clothes were replaced with clean, rich garments and all due to the angel of the Lord. These things were symbolic of things to come. Things to come some 600 years later. And here we, here we are. And all of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. Isaiah 64, 6. Helpless in our sin and guilt. We have no, no defense. Every mouse stopped before the judge. With Satan accusing without any excuse of our own. And then Messiah Jesus speaks up. And he steps up and removes our filthy clothes and puts clean garments upon his robes of righteousness provided by his own obedience and death that we might stand clean before our God, justified, declared righteous in his sight. And so when God himself is the one who justifies, who will dare bring any charge against those whom God has chosen, here is the believer's security in Christ. Drink it in for your encouragement, believer. That's question three. And question four begins, and you'll, you'll recognize how similar the question. Who is he that condemns? Who brings any charge against them? Who is it that brings a condemning charge? Who is he that condemns? And now the answer, Christ Jesus who died. More than that, who was raised to life is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. So the question is like verse 33, but the answer is different. Verse 33 spoke in terms of what God the Father has done as the judge. He's chosen us and he has justified us. Verse 34 speaks about what God the Son has done for us. Four things he has done or is doing for us. 
And so you see, I, I think that is why we have two questions here, somewhat the same, but it gives Paul an opportunity to not only show what the Father has done as the judge in justifying us, but now to show us the Son and what He has done that we might not be condemned. Four aspects to the work of Christ, each one contributing to the believer's security, and it just, again, builds like a piece of music. First, who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus has died. Christ Jesus has died. Now, usually the death of a, of a deliverer would spell disaster for the people, wouldn't it? Oh, no, our deliverer's dead. Our conqueror is dead. We're, we're done. But this death was different than any other death. And so rather than being the end of our hope, it's made the ground of our hope and our assurance. For indeed, it is by his death that we have life, eternal life. Christ Jesus was my substitute, standing in for me, bearing my sin and guilt to the place of punishment and took that death under God's wrath instead of me. Paid the debt I owed and made me free. Now we saw this last week. If at Calvary all you see is what sinful men did to Jesus, you miss the whole gospel. You miss the whole message of the Bible. If you just see what sinful men did in nailing Jesus to the tree, you've missed it. And that's what, verse, that's what we saw last week. There was a transaction going on between God the Father and God the Son as, as He laid our iniquities upon Him, and then Jesus bears that sin to, the, to Calvary's cross, and God the Father crushes Him, damns Him. Hell comes to the cross and reeks from Him what we would have suffered for all eternity, that forsakenness by God. His wrath instead of His love. His justice instead of mercy. He drank the bitter cup for us. And having done so, there's not a drop in the cup left for us to drink. No wrath left for us. He, he, he drank it all. He was cursed that we might be forever blessed. He was condemned that we might be forever without condemnation. No condemnation. So who is he that condemns when Jesus Christ has died? You see the, you see the reasoning of, of Paul. The work of atonement is finished. But, but more than that, secondly, who was raised to life? You see how, how, how Paul wants us to see it. Yes, he's he died, but there's more. There's more to encourage you in your security in Christ. He was raised to life. Now, why was the resurrection of Christ necessary? His work of sacrifice was a finished work. He really bore our wrath in, in our place and satisfied justice for our sin. But how do we know that it satisfied justice? How can we be sure that he, I mean, here he goes into the place of punishment, bearing our sin. He became sin for us. How can we know that, that when he died, God the Father said that was enough to save all of my people from all condemnation? How do we know? 
You see, as long as Jesus is in the grave, we lack the proof of it. And we're forever guessing, was it enough? Did he suffer enough? How do we know that the atonement was enough to satisfy God? Well, the Father raises him from the dead. The Father raises him from the dead, and there's no more question about it. The resurrection of Jesus was the Father's unmistakable way of declaring, my son has suffered enough. He has paid the price in full. The just demands of my broken law have been fully satisfied. Wrath and anger has been fully poured out for those sins. So he was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our righteousness, for our justification, Romans 4.25. Resurrection then is the seal. It's the guarantee of our justification that we are indeed counted righteous in the sight of God. See, he, he raised his son. He showed his approval of this sacrifice in our place. Drink it in for your security your assurance, but there's still more. And the music keeps swelling louder and louder. Not only has Christ died, he was raised to life. And more than that, thirdly, he's at the right hand of God. This answers the question, where is Jesus now? And believers, we don't ask that question enough. Yes, we need to remember what Jesus has done for us. But we need to go on from the cross and from his obedience. We need to go on and, uh, from his resurrection and ask, well, where is he now? He's not here, is he? Well, where is he? This too is for your security. He's at the right hand of God. That's where he's at. Having raised him from the dead, God exalted him to the highest place. Where would that be? God raised him and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, for you, which is his body. You see, God would not receive Jesus Christ into heaven if he still had sin clinging to him. All of our sins were put on him. He became sin for us. He would not be allowed into heaven. Sin cannot dwell with God. So the fact of his resurrection and ascension to the right hand of God says he has taken away our sins. They're gone. They've been thrown into that sea without a bottom. And now he sits on the very throne of God with all power and authority in heaven and on earth given to him. And he rules and uses that authority for the church. Believer, that's your Savior. That's your Lord. That's your friend. That's your good shepherd. And that's where he is right now. Do you see him there? Do you see him there with the eye of faith that sees the invisible? He's there, and he's there for you. That's the glory of it. He's there for you. He's ruling and reigning over everything for you. So Octavius Winslow says, fear not, O believer. Your head and redeemer is alive to frustrate every purpose 
to resist every plot and to silence every tongue that would condemn you. He is at the Father's right hand. So who is he that condemns? Christ has died, was raised again, proving God's acceptance of his offering, and now he's reigning in heaven at God's right hand and all for you, all for you. But there's even more, for in the fourth place, he says, he's also interceding for us. There were two parts to the work of the high priest. First, he made a sacrifice, a fitting, acceptable sacrifice. Blood was shed, and the blood of that sacrifice then, the second part of his work, was taken into the most holy place of the temple where God dwelt, and there the priest would present the blood of the sacrifice and plead it for the blessing and forgiveness of God's people. So, outside the sacrifice, and then taking that sacrifice before the face of God and saying, on the basis of this sacrifice, forgive the sins of your people, blot them out, and bless them instead of curse them. Well, that was all picture, you see, symbolic of things to come. And so our Lord Jesus made the once-for-all sacrifice of himself for our sins on the cross, And then he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood there before the Father. Hebrews 7 or 9, 24 says he didn't enter a man-made sanctuary, man-made temple or tabernacle that was just a copy of the true one. No, he entered heaven itself now to appear for us in God's presence and who now speaks to the Father on our behalf. So he intercedes for us. He speaks to the Father on our behalf. First John 2, 1 and 2. Little children, I've written these things to you that you might not sin. That's why I wrote this, this epistle, John says, First John 2. But, and we're thankful for the but, if anyone does sin... We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. A defense attorney at his right hand who is there pleading our case, our cause. Defending us against all accusations made against us. And what does he plead? He does not plead our righteousness, our obedience, as if that were something to satisfy God. Our innocence. No, he he pleads his own blood and his own obedience. The merits of his life and death. Father, I obeyed for her. I died for her. I took your wrath for her. I paid her entire debt in full. He pleads his work for helpless sinners. He pleads the eternal covenant of redemption, that, that arrangement that was made in heaven before anything was made between the Father and the Son, in which each were given responsibilities. Father, you gave these people to me and said, if I would go down and live and die for them, that you would raise me up and would save them. And he pleads that covenant with his Father. And the faithful and just judge 
is in full agreement with his son and forgives us for Jesus' sake. He's there as our advocate, pleading his own righteousness on our behalf. But Christ's intercession is not only to defend us against accusations of condemnation. It is that. But he also prays for grace to help us in our time of need, doesn't he? Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 15 and 16. That, that's part of the high priest uh, work for us as he prays for us, even as he did for Peter, that, that his faith would not utterly fail. So he prays for us that our faith not fizzle out. What do we owe then to the prayers of our great high priest Jesus there at the right hand of the Father? Can you see how the heart of Jesus is revealed here? The heart of Jesus in heaven for his people here on earth. It's a wonderful thought to think about. There he is exalted in the heavens. And here we are. All of our problems and sins in this wicked world. What's his heart in heaven for his people on earth? You know, when some men are exalted, they forget the concerns of their constituents. They go off to Washington and they forget those that, that put him there about their cause. Or think about that cupbearer of Pharaoh who, who got out of sorts with Pharaoh and, and was thrown into prison and it was the same prison that Joseph was in. And you remember how kind Joseph was to him and, and interpreted his dream and said in three days that you will be restored to your place of honor in Pharaoh's court. And, and when you are, remember me and speak to Pharaoh on my behalf and get me out of this prison. But alas, the cupbearer was restored in three days and forgot all about Joseph, didn't he? Our Lord Jesus humbled himself, came from his place of glory in heaven, came down to earth, worked out our salvation with obedience and the death of the cross with us for 33 years and then was raised and exalted to the Father's right hand. There he is now, once again receiving the glory that was his from all, create, from all eternity. But unlike the cupbearer, Christ's exaltation has not made him forget about us down here on earth. He doesn't forget his brethren. The heart of Jesus in heaven still beats for us, his people here on earth. So tempted and tried, child of God, your exalted Lord remembers you. He thinks of you. Your fears and tears and trials are not unknown to him today. He takes an intimate interest in all that concerns you. If it concerns you, it's a concern of mine. That's, that's the heart of Jesus. And he sympathizes with you in your weaknesses. And he intercedes for you and all your needs. He can't forget you. He will not forget you. Your name, your name, your name is written in the palms of his hands, engraved upon his heart. That's where he carries you. 
And so he can and will not for, cannot and will not forget you, though he be exalted above the highest heaven. What a beautiful Savior we have. Can you not draw sweet comfort and encouragement from what John Murray calls our Redeemer's preoccupation with the security of his people? There he is, exalted in heaven, but he's preoccupied with the security of his people. Is that your thought of Jesus? When you think, where is he? Where is he? He's alive, but where? At the Father's right hand. What's he doing? He's there for me. He's praying for me. He's thinking of me. He's helping me. Glorious reality. And oh, how it assures us and gives us security. He is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to make intercession for us. It's not like the other priests. They could pray for you until they died, and then another priest was needed. This priest ever lives, and because he ever lives, he's able to save you completely, he himself, because he always lives to intercede for you. Have you come to God through this Savior? He's able to save all who come to God through him. Whatever your sin, whatever your situation, here's a Savior for you. Here's a Savior for me. In Him alone is salvation, and it's a sure and certain salvation. Go to Him in prayer. Ask His forgiveness. Trust in what He's done for sinners and what He is doing for all who trust in Him. And you too can know this assurance that all is well between heaven and my soul. Christian, can you see why it's important not only to think about what God has done for you in the past, but why it's important for you to think about where he is now and what he's doing for you now. Look, you saints, the sight is glorious. See the man of sorrows now. See him now, exalted, but not forgetful of you. See him praying for you. And does that not spell assurance and sweet security for the weakest believer? So can you see what Paul the conductor is doing as he's bringing this symphony of Romans 8 to a glorious finale? He's driving home this, this same point with, with variation, a series of questions. We've now seen four out of the five, and these questions are not irrelevant questions posed by some abstract theologians in an ivory tower somewhere, uh, thinking about questions like how many angels could you stand on the point of a, of a pin? No, it's, it's not that kind of a question he's answering. Uh, he's, his questions are not questions that no one is asking or struggling with. Paul the theologian is also Paul the pastor who cares for these people that he writes to, and he knows that these are real questions that plague real believers who are in Christ Jesus. Questions that would hamper us and, and rob us of our assurance and even freeze us, paralyze us with a lack of security in Christ. So he meets them head on and he answers them all with this glorious, triumphant note of God being for us to that end. Is it not true that we're often worried and upset and fixated on what is against us in our lives? What's going against us? 
So he reminds us of this triumphant reality that that God is for us. Yes, those against you are great, but he who is for you is greater. And is it not true that we are troubled by our many needs? Indeed, there's never a time we're not in need. I need thee every hour. One of our identities is that we are poor and needy. That's who we are. We're made dependent creatures. And and we're so aware of our needs. I need, I need, I need. And, And so Paul asks this question. If he didn't withhold his own son, when I needed a Savior and he didn't withhold his own son but gave him up for me, do you think for a moment he's going to withhold something else that I need? question we ask and an answer that we need. Yes, your needs are many, but the giver of his son is just getting started with his giving. Remember someone saying, if you're going to become a follower of Jesus, you're not, you need to get used to receiving because God just keeps giving and giving and giving again. There's a fullness of grace in Jesus Christ. And from him, his fullness, we have all received, haven't we, believers? Grace upon grace, like waves beating upon the shore of our hearts and our lives. He giveth more grace when the burdens grow greater. He sendeth more strength when the labors increase. To added afflictions, he addeth his mercy. To multiplied trials, his multiplied peace. His love has no limit. His, his grace has no measure. His power has no boundary known unto man. For out of his infinite riches in Jesus, he giveth and giveth and giveth again. And if he's given you Jesus, he'll not withhold anything. We need to hear that. We need to pivot to that reality. He's asking questions we all deal with. Is it not true that we're painfully aware of our many sins against God? I should say, if you're not, then you're definitely not a Christian. You've got a heart of stone. Even lost people can be convicted about their sin, and that doesn't save them. But no no Christian can be indifferent to sin, and so we're aware of our sins, and, and we're aware as as what we read in Ephesians chapter 5, that because of these things, the wrath of God is coming. And how the law condemns us for our sins. You know, the law has one thing to say to us in our sins. Damn him. Damn her. That's all the law can say to us in our sin, without Christ. And that, that's why the sin is the sting of death. And Satan throws his accusations in against our sins too, doesn't he? He too calls for our damnation and our own consciences sometimes can be as aggressive in condemning us as the devil himself. So this is no question that people are not asking. What about our sins as Christians? And so Paul reminds us that God, the judge, 
in love has chosen to save us and has justified us. The verdict has been made. You're innocent. You're, you're declared righteous in his court. Yes, our sins are many, but his mercy is more. He is a God who justifies the wicked, who then can bring any accusation against us if he has declared us righteous. And yes, your sins are great, but his grace is greater than all our sins. So who can condemn us when the judge's own son has died for us, the death that we deserve to die, and more than that was raised to life, proving that the father was pleased with the sacrifice offered on our behalf, and is even now at the right hand of God, exalted over everything, and that for us, and that he also is interceding for us with prayers the Father cannot and will not deny. Well, you, you get a sense of the swelling symphony. He's, he's building up to the end. He's got one more question, but it's all driving home, this, the believer's security in Christ. Let's live more upon it, the justification that's ours in Jesus Christ. Let's think more about these questions and the answers that they demand from us. Let's rejoice in them. Let's sing of them. Let's rest in them. Let's count on them. Paul the pastor, bringing up the questions that plague us and answering them. You know, there have been other pastors who've done the same thing. And they've, they've thought about these questions and they've, they've put the answers into Lyrics of, of songs and, and poems. Let me just read a couple. Pastor John Newton writes, Bow down beneath a load of sin by Satan sorely pressed, by war without and fears within, I come to thee for rest. Be thou my shield and hiding place that sheltered near thy side, I may my fierce accuser face and tell him thou hast died. O oh, wondrous love, to bleed and die, to bear the cross and shame that guilty sinners such as I might plead thy gracious name. Or Pastor Augustus Toplady, the terrors of law and of God with me can have nothing to do. My Savior's obedience and blood hides all my transgressions from view. It's this blessed gospel of Jesus Christ that sounds the note of triumph and silences every condemning accusation in the court of heaven against us, telling us over and over again in so many variations and ways that the believer's security in Christ cannot be any more secure. More happy, but not more secure, the glorified spirits in heaven. Take your hymnal and turn to number 702. Believer, this is your security. Let's glory in Jesus Christ and put no confidence in the flesh. It's number 702, the wonderful grace of Jesus. Let's all stand. And if you need this Savior, call on Him while we sing, and He will receive you. Mm -hmm.